You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. I have a long history with Rev. When I was a Shawnee State student, I used to come to Rev for a frequent amount of time, and then even the Bible studies, and I was gone for about a year and a half, and I've been back now for about another year and a half, so... I have a long history with Rev. Uh, influential men like Eric Kimsey and Kelly Kraft came from this church. They've been, they've been a great help to me. And then even Dave, who's essentially like discipled me and kind of led me through this path, which I really appreciate. Um, for any of you that don't know, uh, I'm actually an ex-atheist. And I've been in the faith now for about six years. Um, and I go to Liberty University and study for ministry. So I've never taken a class on preaching never taken a class on sermon writing, so all of this is very new to me, <laughs> and it, uh, it freaks me out to even be up here and speak in front of people, but nevertheless, it's, uh, it's great to be with family, because I know, like, I love you people, and, and you guys will help me, so I appreciate that. Um, so enough about me. Uh, what we'll be reading tonight is out of the Gospel of Luke, uh, the chapter 15, and in this chapter, we will see three different parables. Um, Many of us know this, this third parable, which is the, the parable of the prodigal son. And even though a lot of us have heard this throughout our lives, even as kids and even as adults, I would invite us to kind of reevaluate and reconsider how we understand this parable and how it affects us. Ultimately, we'll see that these parables tell us about who God is, who the Pharisees are, and ultimately how we tend to act like the Pharisees. Um, in light of this chapter, I hope that God would work on our hearts, uh, make them malleable so we can understand uh, who we are in these parables and that he will affect us for heart change. We should see God as seeker, God as a forgiver, God who is overjoyed for sinners who repent, and uh, ultimately that we have a calling to take place in that joy. So I'm going to go ahead and pray before we get into this text, and uh, we'll get out and we'll read. <clears throat> Dear Father, I thank you for this opportunity to be in front of this church and to be in front of these people. Um, I just ask that in, in the words that I'm saying, that they not be about me, but they be the truths that you communicate through your scriptures. Um, I pray that uh, they would affect our hearts, that we would change, uh, that we would actually take these truths that you've given us from your word and allow us to apply them in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read through verses 1 through 10. So if you want to follow with me, it's again, it's Luke 15. <clears throat> now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And just so, I tell you, there is joy before angels of God over one sinner who repents. All right. So um, to kind of dig into this, what I'm, 
my plan is to kind of uh, condense this down and kind of break it up and narrate a little bit on what's going on in these parables. Um, so we see the, the context is, is Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's teaching. And a, a massive crowd of tax collectors and sinners are engulfing around him. Um, and the Pharisees and scribes take notice of Jesus and what he is teaching and the crowd that he's drawing. And to kind of set the stage for what these, for what these first two parables are, are setting, um, we have to look at who the Pharisees are and what the relationship to Jesus is. The Pharisees were traditional Jews who held to the law rigorously. They were the conservatives as it gets. Uh, the, the Sadducees, which were another sect they actually fought with, they, they fought against Hellenization. Um, they were engulfed in their traditions. They were pretentious in their attitudes. They often made extra laws, uh, and they believed that they knew God because of the scriptures. They claimed to never sin, that they had no sin. And they literally thought salvation came through perfect obedience to the law. They viewed their sanctity to be superior to everyone else. They were, in the most literal sense, self-righteous. And because of this understanding, they hated sinners. They had no understanding of grace, and they hated those who they thought were lower than them. So, from that point then, it asks, how do, we look at, how do they look at Jesus? How do the Pharisees understand who Jesus is? Well, they complain about Jesus, that he receives with tax that he... <laughs> Uh, receives and eats with tax collectors and sinners. And this is a common act that we actually see Jesus do all throughout the Gospels and throughout the Scriptures. Um, the term this man that we see in verse 2 is a term that the Pharisees are using to show their contempt for Jesus. They dismiss Jesus' claim to be God. In their mind, God would not associate with these people. And this isn't the first time that they've actually met Jesus. Jesus has been on their radar for a while now, um, and they commonly travel with him and try and ask him questions, try and trip him up and catch him into a lie. So they're definitely aware of him. And, and this, is kind of, this kind of sets the stage then, because Jesus is teaching these people. The Pharisees are obviously opposed to Jesus and what he is teaching. So when we go to verse 3, uh, and we, when we look at these parables, we see that Jesus is actually telling these parables to the Pharisees. So these first two parables. Um, and what he's trying to communicate to these Pharisees is that God pursues the lost. That these, these tax collectors and these sinners, these are the sheep in the coin in these parables. A lost sheep would be tired, it would be filthy, it would be helpless without its shepherd. And sheep are dumb animals. They often get themselves into trouble. Um, but nevertheless, this shepherd, he wants them, he pursues them. And this is the state of the unregenerate. This is the state of the unbeliever. Um, the shepherd, this man, pursues these sheep, nevertheless, finds him and carries them home. And then we see in the second parable with the woman and the coin. It was a, a common act for a peasant woman to only have about ten coins of family fortune. And for her to actually lose a single coin is, is a massive loss. Now, I don't know about you, if I lose a $5 bill in my car, I will rip out the entire front dash and front seat until I find it. So, uh, for this woman who's only had ten coins, you know, this is a major loss for her. But I think what's being highlighted in these parables here is that these are valued belongings that are lost. Sheep were valuable for their wool. This coin is valuable to this woman because this is a tenth of her, of her earnings. And these people, these tax collectors and sinners that are around Jesus, these people are valuable because they're made in the image of God. Christ says they're made in the image of me. So what we see here is that God pursues the sinner 
and brings the sinner into his eternal kingdom, and joy is found in heaven. But what I want to notice here out of these, out of these first two parables is that there's a, a term here that says, until he or until she finds it. And I think that's important. This, this communicates something to us about God, who he is. This explains just how cherished this one single sheep and this one single coin was. We see that God is the pursuer. He will pursue and he will find them. So the shepherd and the peasant woman extends their call for rejoicing and their family and neighbors and, and they, for bringing home and finding the sheep and the coin. So ultimately, we see that the father rejoices over the sinner who was once lost and is found. And I want to say here that the, the narrative in the first two parables is different than the narrative we will find in the third parable. The narrative in the first two parables goes something like this, that we have a valued belonging that is lost, and this valued belonging is found, and that there's rejoicing. But we see that in the third parable, this is actually not the case. These, the lost tax collectors and sinners are pursued by God, and their hearts are changed, and this is what we see. But then when we finally dive into the third parable, there's a, there's a narrative shift. We see another character, which is the older brother, and this kind of changes how we understand this. Um... In this third parable, before I go ahead and kind of read it, uh, I want to bring us, kind of just, just remind us where we're at again. Jesus is teaching. He has tax collectors and sinners all around him. The Pharisees are charging him. Um, and right in front of their faces, Jesus uses these parables to teach who he is, who the Pharisees are, and to teach them ultimately about grace through this parable. Um, and the first two parables are almost like a warm-up. He's explaining the love of God and seeking after them. But in this third parable here, um, Jesus really kind of comes after the Pharisees. So I want to explain these characters, and we'll go through and read this. I'm kind of rambling. (laughs) So uh, the father in this third parable represents God. The younger son represents these tax collectors and sinners that are surrounding Jesus. Um, And the older brother represents the Pharisee who is angry and refuses to celebrate that the younger son has come home. And Jesus paints in this parable a very provocative and offensive and repulsive idea uh, to drive this point home to the Pharisees. So let's go ahead and read through this. Um, verses 11, we'll start there and we'll go all the way down through 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself. Sorry, let me back up. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent himself into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. And he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out to entreat him, and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat? That I might celebrate with my friends? When this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So first what we see in in this third parable then. The younger son asks for the share of property from his father. And in this culture and in this context, this is almost an unheard thing. This is an honor culture. For the younger son to come to his father and ask for his inheritance, essentially to look at his father and say, I wish you were dead. Give me what I deserve. And out of the two to even have the right to ask would be the older brother, not the younger. Nevertheless, to probably the amazement of the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees, the father grants this request. So this is, this is a taboo request to start with. The, number, the, the second thing is that the father grants this request. This, this looks bad for the father. Um, so next we see that, that within a few days, the son gathered all of his possessions, and he takes off into a journey. And the wording here, journey, essentially says that he leaves Israel. He goes into a pagan, idolatrous, Gentile country. And the son essentially liquidates all that he has, all of his possessions, and goes out and leaves Israel. So he spends all of his money, and a severe famine in this country comes up. And we see later in this parable that he actually spends his money on prostitutes and reckless living. After that, desperate, he was hired to a countryman to feed the pigs in the fields. And also, I, I want to point that like, this is an unacceptable act. This is a Jew working for a Gentile. And on top of that, Jews are not allowed to be around swine, Right? Not only is he around them, he's feeding them. So we see in this parable, Jesus is drawing these things that are obviously going to go against the grain of how the Pharisees understand anything to do with their culture or salvation. Um, The younger son is starving. He even longs to eat with the pigs, but was given nothing. This Gentile owner actually valued the life of his swine herder. I mean, he valued the life of his pigs over the life of the swine herder. So continuing on, the starving son, in a moment of clarity, remembered the abundance of food that his father had for his servants. And broken and humble, desperate, to the point of near death, he decides to return home to his father. Now, in verse 18, this is a big point. He comes to this realization, and he repents. And this is major. We see that the son realized he is unworthy, He knows of his wrongdoing. He's remorseful. And anticipating his father's anger, he actually asks to not even be considered as family, but to be considered as a servant. His misery is real. His recognition that he is to blame in his actions are also real. 
And until this son arises and goes back to his father, there is no reconciliation between them. So later walking home, the father sees his son and is filled with compassion and runs to him and gives him a kiss. The father has every right at this point to see his son. He can publicly stone him to death for bringing this amount of dishonor upon his family. Yet he runs to him. He kisses him. And it suggests uh, for, for the father to actually do this is extremely dishonorable to the Pharisees. Um, for the father to run is to suggest that he is not in, in time or he, he doesn't have a good amount of resources or doesn't manage his time well. Um, and for, her to hike up, for him to hike up his robes and run to his son is also dishonorable because it shows his legs. Um, so at this point, I imagine the Pharisees are beyond annoyed with this parable. He, they're breaking all of the cultural norms. This is offensive. This is a dirty, filthy son who brought dishonor upon his family, and then this dishonorable father takes him back and runs to him. It's offensive. But the son confesses his sins to his father. And as the son is doing this, the son is actually interrupted by his father as he's trying to confess to him. And instead of stoning his son, we see that the father's love for his son is not conditioned upon his confession. For the father to refrain from scolding his son is in the same way that Jesus is refraining from scolding tax collectors and sinners. To show them this love is the same way that Jesus is appealing to these people. The father has no intention of letting the son work his way back into his love. And this blows a gaping hole in the understanding of the Pharisees. Because to the Pharisees, the only way you're admitted back into the kingdom of God or accepted as a child of God is by perfect obedience to the law. You see how this, this goes against their grain. This doesn't make sense to them. And they refuse to believe that an honorable father would take back such a dishonorable son. So next, the father requests the best robe, places, places it on him, places a ring upon his finger and shoes for his feet. The robe, the ring, the sandals, these are all symbols of authority, that he has sonship again. The ring would have a family crest on it, the robe is authoritative, and the shoes are only for royalty because the peasants did not wear shoes. So what this communicates is he is accepted entirely, and he's done nothing for it. This is the grace of the Father. This is the climax of this parable. This is what Jesus is trying to drive home into the hearts of the Pharisees. He obtains full sonship by the Father's grace alone, and nothing that he did. Then the father orders a fattened calf to be killed. It's eaten and celebrated. Um, and what's significant about this is that obviously these, these fattened calves were actually more than likely saved for the older son's wedding. This would feed 200 plus people. The, the father plans to have a giant celebration for the fact that his son has come home. And this, this just shows that the father has an amazing amount of joy that his son has finally come home. Then we see that the, the father says, my son was dead and was lost and is now alive and found. And we see this contrast of the spiritually lost and dead sinner who, is, who repents and is made alive and is found. We see this, uh, this narrative in Ephesians that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and made alive in Christ. And at this time, the older son was in the field. He heard the celebrating and called a servant to him to find out what was going on. 
And I like the wording in here I like because it says that the older brother draws near to the celebration. In the same way, when we look at the beginning of these first two parables, the Pharisees are drawing near to Jesus' teaching. So just as the Pharisees um, did to Jesus, I want to also mention that the, other, the older brother reacts just as the Pharisees and scribes would. The servant explains to the younger brother he has returned home, that the father has ordered the fattened calf to be killed and to celebrate his return. And what he does is he grumbles and complains. Because in the mind of the older brother, this is not worth celebrating over. It's not worth it. Now the older son was angry. He refuses to go in and celebrate. The father comes out and pleaded with the older son to come in and celebrate. And I want to mention that the father doesn't have to do this. The father can just send a servant and demand his older son to come back into this celebration. But he doesn't. The father goes out to plead with the older brother because he loves the older brother. And in the same way, Jesus in this parable, because he loves the Pharisees, he's coming out to plead to them, to try and get them to celebrate and accept lost sinners who are repentant and are accepted in the kingdom of God. Jesus is showing grace to the men that hate him. These men don't believe he is God. They don't like what he teaches this is, the, this is the same grace that the father shows to the younger son. And this is the love that God has towards his enemies. Jesus is not just teaching the love of God, but he is physically doing it. So the older son charges the father. He's angry. The son states that he has served him for many years, never disobeying a command, just as the Pharisees would, holding to the law rigorously. He says he has upheld the family's honor. He's upheld the family's integrity. He believes that he should be the one who's, who should be honored and celebrated over. He says, I kept all the rules. You celebrate me. And what is apparent here is that there's a disconnect between the older brother and the father. While the younger son left in heart and in body, the older brother left in heart but maintained a rigorous dedication in body. The older brother demonstrates an understanding of works-based love. And he explains that in all of his dedication, he has never even received as much as a goat, which, as a sidebar, is interesting, um, because it brings us to ask, why a goat? A goat would only feed him and his friends. When we look at the, the Pharisees themselves, they would eat in cliques for purity. And not only in eating in this small group of people, they would exclude God, which is the father, and they'd also exclude his brother, because they don't accept either one. The Pharisees would not have it. So he continues. The older son points out the sin and dishonoring of the, father's land, of the, of the younger son's uh, sin. And he argues that you killed a fattened calf for him. He squandered his wealth and property on reckless living and prostitutes. And he actually says, this son of yours. So this, this language shows that this older brother does not accept the younger brother to be back into his family. This son of yours. This is not my brother. In the same way, the Pharisees refuse to call repentant sinners children of God. He is quick to point the finger and condemn instead of rejoicing for these that have come to him. So the father replies, saying that the older son has always been with him and that all that the father possesses is his. The father doesn't even address the accusations made by the older brother because this is not the point. The sins of the younger no longer matter. 
the father doesn't dismiss the older brother's obedience. But nevertheless, that doesn't eliminate his love for the younger brother. So last, we see that in this, that he explains that celebrating is fitting. He said, My son was dead and is lost, but is now alive and found. The older brother's complaint is fitting for the father to teach the older son of the acceptance and joy the father has for the younger brother. Just as the complaint by the Pharisees in the beginning of these parables is the perfect setting for Jesus to teach the Pharisees about grace. God cannot restrain his joy and celebration for sinners who repent. And the joy and celebration that the Pharisees won't have. So what's going on here then? The story being told by Jesus is directed towards these Pharisees. Like I've said a million times before, but I'm going to continue to say it again. Um, I would argue that we also tend to be like Pharisees. We live morally, we study the scriptures, we study theology and doctrine. Yet how many times have all of this studying led to a gospel conversation? We think higher of ourselves than we ought. We develop this belief that we've contributed somehow to our salvation and that we contribute to God loving us. We stick our noses up in the air to those that are not in the faith. We forget about grace. I think this is a big one here. We forget that we are saved by grace. We don't show grace to the hostile atheist, to the people in our family that we don't like, or to our coworkers. So, what this brings to mind is, is questions of who are the tax collectors and sinners in your life? Who have you gave up on? Who is so filthy that you don't want to evangelize to? And who have you stopped caring about? And see, so we, we might not do these things publicly, but we do these things in our heart. We leave in heart. I want, to re- I want to kind of point out that the older brother never goes after the younger. And I would say that the reason why the older brother doesn't go after the younger is because he hates him. That's a strong charge. But I ask, do we preach the gospel? Do we preach the gospel to the thieves, to porn addicts, to drug users, to the homeless man on the corner, to the sex offender in the neighborhood, the drunk at the bar? Do we talk to the family members that we don't like? Do we preach and evangelize to the Christians that are nominal in their faith and have bad theology and annoy us? Do we spend the time to go and talk to them? Do we talk to the atheists in our philosophy class? We don't preach the gospel to those that we don't feel are worth saving. We only preach the gospel to those that we find worthy to preach to. When we don't preach the gospel to those around us because they don't meet our standard of being worthy, you hate them. This is, this is wicked. It's an evil thing. The younger brother comes to his senses and realizes his sin, but I want to point out that he continues to think like the older brother. The younger brother thinks he's going to earn his father's love back, he will, that he will do enough good deeds and work his way back into his father's love. But I want to point out how many times do we think like this in our relationship to God. We convince ourselves that we can muster up enough strength and enough courage to please God and earn his favor. 
We think that if we evangelize enough, if we diligently read scriptures and study theology enough, we white-knuckle ourselves into obedience enough, if we live morally and do enough good deeds, God will love us. We think like the older brother. But I want to ask, then, what's the father's response to this? We've said it before, but the father responds in grace. The father sees him from afar, right? The father's actively looking for his son. The father runs to him in compassion. God pursues the sinner. And the father clothes him in the finest robe, sandals, and ring. He's a son. He's accepted. And the father refuses to let his son earn his favor. He gives him free grace. And this is the gospel. Every other religion in the world tells you that if you can do enough good deeds, you will earn favor with God. Or that you'll have some type of positive reincarnation that will make you happy in the next life. It's all works-based. The gospel of Jesus Christ declares to the sinner that you cannot earn favor with God. You can't do anything to have favor with him. And this is the purpose of Christ. He is the redeemer and the redemptive plan for God's elect. Christ comes and lives a sinless life that we cannot live. He goes to die on a cross in our place for our sin. He satisfies the wrath of God. And by faith and repentance in him, Christ's atoning work and life is imputed to us and we are counted as righteous before the Father. He makes us accepted. And we see that when we look at the narrative of the gospel, we don't earn it. We, know, we read in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is what makes the gospel scandalous. This is free grace. But then how do we look at, how does the older brother react? He gets angry. He grumbles, he complains, he's angry. The older brother essentially argues that the younger is not worth celebrating over. That he has held all the demands of the father. And that the younger is too filthy. Don't accept him back. He had his chance. But instead, the brother refuses to celebrate. And this reflects on the Pharisees who were anti-evangelistic. They had no grace, did not like grace, and showed none of it. And I want to mention here, for the older brother to be outside of the celebration is to be outside of the kingdom. And I ask that as, as believers, is this how we ought to act? We can't experience the grace of God and refuse to rejoice with the sinner who repents. We cannot beat our chest with saved by grace through faith in Christ and then show no love and have no joy for those who have been accepted into God's family. We ought to be rejoicing over the sinner who is saved. And the same rejoicing that we see in verses 7 and verses 10. We're almost done. We have takeaways and applications here out of, out of these parables. The first thing I want to mention, God rejoices and celebrates over the lost sinner who repents, but this should be a shared joy by all who claim to be in part of his family. Can we truly call ourselves sons and daughters of God and take no pleasure in what gives our Lord joy? We must have an overbearing joy for the spiritually dead sinner who is justified, repents, and becomes an adopted son of God. 
If we have no joy, what we, what we will also not have is the desire to see dead men come to life. If we have no joy, we are no better than the Pharisee pointing the finger at God and saying, they're not worth your time. Two, preach Christ crucified to all, not to those that just fit your bill of who is being worthy of preaching to. At Revolution, we have, we have the, uh, the saying that apathy is not an option, right? It's on the back of our shirts. We, we've talked about it before. Um, we're called to evangelize to everyone. And if we know the transforming grace of the gospel, how can we withhold this truth? To not chase after the younger brother, the sinner, is to hate him. So we must preach Christ crucified to all. And the third I want to mention is that is to know that the irretrievable sinner does not exist. God's grace is sufficient to restore what seems to be the most irretrievably lost sinner. Jesus portrays this younger son in this parable and makes this parable so offensive for this reason. He's driving this home into the hearts of the Pharisees. There is not a too far gone that doesn't exist. They would view these tax collectors and sinners as being too filthy. The grace of God is bigger than the sins of men. Tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves, murderers, all throughout the Bible became children of God. The the young son is restored and is loved by the father. And I stand here today by the grace of God as an ex-atheist to tell you this. We have more grace through Christ than you have sin. It does not matter where you're at, where you've been. So I ask that you do not give up on these people. Continue to pursue them. So I have four points in conclusion then. Don't be a Pharisee. And that's myself included. Some of these things I mention in here I struggle with, and that's why I say them. Just being vulnerable. We can't forget about the grace of God. Don't hate the younger brother. Continue to pursue them. Chase after them. Don't hate them. And rejoice with the father when the younger brother has come home. You've just seen a sovereign act of God. We should have nothing but joy. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this time together to to worship you corporately. We thank you for this church and these group of people that are here. And ultimately, I thank you for this opportunity uh, to preach your words. I hope that these words penetrate the hearts of all of us here, that we would examine who we actually are, that we would be efficient and preach the gospel to these people. We thank you for for the truths that we have in these scriptures. We thank you for the fact that you sent your son to die in the place for us. Lord, please let us remember that we were once the prodigal son. Don't let us forget about our own sin. But let us chase after you and your truths and let these shape our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.